Uh, good morning. I'm Mary Anastasio Grady with the Wall Street Journal, and I'll be moderating our next panel, uh, which is titled Rethinking the, Glo the Global Fiat Money System. Um, I don't think I need to explain to anyone here today why we need to rethink um, about fiat money. In the past three years, the Fed's balance sheet has grown to over $2 trillion. The Fed's gotten into the business of uh, buying mortgage-backed securities, taking credit risk, and it's now financing the federal government uh, by buying treasuries, something that reminds me of the region I write about, especially Argentina. Um, <clears throat> Uh, we're lucky enough to have with us three very talented writers this morning who also happen to be experts on the Fed. Our first speaker is uh, Ben Stile, who's a senior fellow and director of international economics at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. He's also the founding editor of <coughs> excuse me, International Finance, a top scholarly economics journal, as well as co-founder and managing member of Efficient Frontiers, a market consultancy. Um, ben has authored zillions of papers and books, but I think it's worth pointing out uh, that his most recent book, which is called Money, Markets, and Sovereignty, was co-authored with former Salvadoran finance minister Manuel Hines and won the uh, Manhattan Institute's Hayek Book Prize in 2010. Uh, again, this is a very sophisticated audience, but for anybody who wants a clear understanding of the difference between the gold standard and the gold exchange standard, uh, the chapter in that book on that, on that um, issue is excellent, very clear, and uh, easy to handle. Please, wel uh, please help me in welcoming Ben Stile. Thank you very much, Mary. Uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning. Um, I'd like to focus my uh, comments here this morning on what I consider to be one of the most prominent side effects of the financial crisis, and that is the elevation of the central banker who was uh, uh, formerly supposed to be an inflation-targeting technocrat to the role of Churchillian war leader. Uh, ready to risk anything, to print what it takes to restore economic growth and full employment. For me, this raises um, two fundamental issues. First, well, what limits, if any, should elected officials actually impose on such aspiring great heroes? And second, what limits will the market ultimately impose on them if elected officials choose to forbear? I'm going to focus on the second of these uh, questions. Um, three observations I'd like to make. The first one um, is based on the fundamental uh, accounting identity that defines gross domestic product, GDP. The left side of the equation equals uh, private consumption plus investment plus government spending plus net exports. Now, um, a, a lot of extremely prominent and intelligent Keynesian economic commentators treat the variables on the right side of the equation as if they were perfect substitutes for one another. Um, in other words, if there's a, a, a massive decline in, say, business investment, that can easily be replaced by the government um, uh, stimulating 
uh, increased um, uh, uh, consumers spending or in fact stepping in and doing the spending itself. The variables are held not to be interrelated. Uh, increasing government spending, for example, will have no negative uh, impact on uh, business investment. And this is actually a very critical assumption if you consider the fact that today, as we speak, uh, long-term fixed corporate uh, investment, fixed asset investment, is at the lowest level it's been since World War II. Uh, so this is actually a, a very important debate that we're having. Now, lest it uh, be uh, thought that I am caricaturing this certain view, uh, let me quote the most prominent uh, economic uh, uh, commentator in the world today, Paul Krugman. I uh, pick on him for two reasons. First, he is the most prominent economic commentator in the world today. And second, he happens to be very easy to pick on. Um, <laughs> let me go back to his observations during the last major economic downturn, because I think that'll give you some perspective in terms of how to evaluate his prescriptions this time around. So back in 2001, this is Paul Krugman, I'm quoting him from the New York Times. The driving force behind the current slowdown is a plunge in business investment. Over the last few years, businesses spent too much on equipment and software, and they will be cautious about further spending until their excess capacity has been worked off. Very clear, very accurate. But, he observed, to reflate the economy, the Fed does not have to restore business investment. Any kind of increase in demand will do. That is, the variables on the right side of the equation are interchangeable. I quote him again. You don't have to refill a flat tire through the puncture. So what did Paul Krugman recommend? He recommended very aggressive um, uh, Fed action loosening of monetary policy to achieve what? To stimulate the interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy. I quote him again. Housing, which is highly sensitive to interest rates, could help lead a recovery. In fact, he beat that drum repeatedly over the course of 2001 and 2002, but the Fed did not move aggressively enough for him, no institution possibly could. So in August of 2002, he wrote, and I quote him again, the Fed needs to create a housing bubble to replace the NASDAQ bubble. Wish granted. <laughs> now, if uh, Paul Krugman can be permitted a flat tire uh, analogy, let me use my own analogy. I prefer the shower analogy. Say you get into the shower in the morning, no water comes out, you call the plumber. Uh, the plumber says you have holes in the pipe and to repair them it will cost you $1,000. You say my wife would never authorize such expenditure, just turn up the water pressure. And this is the Fed strategy right now. Um, the uh, pipes are indeed broken. Although large uh, corporations like IBM, which can bypass the broken banking sector and issue debt directly to the public, are borrowing at record low rates, small and medium-sized enterprises, which can't do that and are dependent on the banking sector, are facing real rates of interest that are much higher than they were uh, uh, before the financial crisis. The Fed cannot address this. Uh, uh, simply by um, engaging in further quantitative easing. That doesn't mean it has no effect. When there are holes in the pipes, the liquidity escapes out into other areas, often areas where you don't want them to escape out into commodities prices, gold prices, 
junk bond prices, emerging market debt prices. It can emerge in all sorts of areas where we don't want it to take place. Uh, let me move on to my second point, which is that um, the sort of heroics that these prominent Keynesian economic commentators want the Fed and the ECB to engage in can actually only be even attempted by the Fed and the ECB because those two institutions together account for 90% of the world's monetary reserves. No other central bank can even try this. When I said as much in the Financial Times back in May with my co-author Manuel Hines, uh, Paul Krugman attacked us on his blog. He titled his entry, Dumb Stuff in the FT, and he said, and I quote him again, wow, have these guys ever talked to anyone in Sweden which doesn't need euros to create more kroner? Well, I did better than that. I went to the data. Here they are. Oh, what happened to my animation here? All right, well, we'll start from here. Um, let me explain what this is. This top picture is the Swedish central bank uh, uh, balance sheet. Uh, on the bottom, that black line you'll see is the uh, Swedish central bank's uh, net domestic assets. You'll see here, forgive me, I don't know if I have a pointer here, but uh, the spike in the black line at the top of the crisis, that's the Swedish central bank loosening monetary policy, increasing liquidity to respond to the crisis. Now, how did they do it? They did it by dumping their foreign assets to raise dollars and euros. In other words, it did no good in a crisis to give the banks kroner because kroner was useless to them. What they needed was dollars and euros. So in fact, Paul Krugman was wrong. The Swedish central bank did in fact need euros and dollars in order to uh, engage in these heroics. He mentioned Australia as well in his blog entry. So to show you that this is not a fluke, I didn't just happen to get this particular one right, I have the same figures here from the Australian central bank's balance sheet. And you'll see the same effect. Here's this massive spike right over here in the um, net domestic assets of the Australian central bank. And simultaneously, you will see a massive decline in their net foreign assets. That's the Australian Central Bank selling foreign assets to raise um, dollars in particular and also um, uh, euros. So no other central banks can even attempt these sorts of heroics. That leads me to uh, my last point, which is uh, some observations on the ECB in particular and the um, uh, Federal Reserve. Now, many who support this great leader concept of the central banker in the crisis believe that the European Central Bank can effectively conduct monetary policy and fiscal policy at the same time. I would contend that they are doing neither effectively um, uh, right now. And let me give you some numbers to show you why that is. Now, what does it mean to conduct monetary policy uh, effectively. Well, I go back to um, uh, Wim Dausenberg, the first president of the European Central Bank. Back in 2000, he was asked what metrics he uses to determine whether the ECB's monetary policy framework was effective. And he said what he did was he looked at um, uh, short-term government borrowing rates. 
and he would uh, see uh, how closely they moved with the ECB's policy rate. In other words, was the ECB the driving force behind these rates? Alan Greenspan said as much in the 1990s about Federal Reserve policy during the period of the so-called uh, Great Moderation. So how did the ECB actually do during that period? Well, um, uh, unfortunately, in my, no animations here, so I lose the su suspense. Um, but if you look at this left bar here, this is the correlation between the ECB's policy rate and three-month Spanish government borrowing rates for the first decade of the euro, up until May of 2010. And you can see that that correlation is almost perfect. The e movements in the ECB's policy rate basically dictated movements in the Spanish government uh, borrowing rate, and those borrowing rates in turn dictated movements in, in private sector borrowing rates. So the ECB was, in fact, according to Dausenberg's um, uh, primary criterion, very effective in conducting monetary policy. You can see that that correlation since May of uh, 2010 has gone down to virtually zero percent. And w this figure has been replicated now in Portugal, in Ireland, in Greece, in Italy. Over an increasing swathe of the um, uh, Eurozone, the ECB's uh, movements in the policy rate has virtually no effect whatsoever. What all investors care about in those countries right now is default risk. Now that comes to the um, uh, second point I wanted to make, which is about the ECB's capacity to conduct uh, fiscal policy. Um, it's uh, often held that the ECB should be the so-called big bazooka in this crisis and should use one trillion new euros, two trillion perhaps, whatever it takes uh, to buy up uh, all the debt it needs to from uh, being produced by Italy in particular right now, but uh, certainly uh, Spain as well, to keep borrowing costs manageable uh, within a reasonable uh, spread from uh, German rates. Uh, can the ECB uh, uh, actually do that? And I would argue that uh, no, the ultimate um, uh, guarantor of last resort in the Eurozone is the German taxpayer. The ECB has uh, 81 billion euros in capital. To put that in perspective, if there were merely to be a 25% write-down in the value of pig debt, Portugal, Ireland, Greece, forget about Spain and Italy, that would wipe out that 81 billion euros in capital. Would that actually matter? Now, technically speaking, a central bank can operate without capital for a period. The problem is this. Someday, at some point in the future, the ECB will need to tighten monetary policy. In order to do that, it will need to engage in open market operations, that is, sell assets. It needs assets to sell. Unless it is recapitalized by the German taxpayer, it can never tighten monetary policy effectively. If the markets come to doubt that the German taxpayer will be willing to recapitalize the um, ECB, there will be the worst God Almighty run against the Euro that you can possibly uh, uh, imagine. So there are strict limits to the ECB's ability to conduct fiscal policy. Finally, a few observations on the Federal Reserve. Uh, the Federal Reserve actually has less reported capital than the ECB. It has $58 um, uh, billion dollars in capital and it is leveraged 56 to 1. 
Uh, having said that, it's in a much stronger position for several reasons. First of all, uh, on paper, it made quite a profit last year on its interventions. You can say it was skillful or it was fortunate, but it did. It made about $78 billion in profit on its uh, interventions uh, last year. Second, the market does not doubt that if the Fed were to get into uh, trouble, ultimately, the U.S. taxpayer would stand behind this uh, institution. Uh, notwithstanding uh, uh, Congressman uh, Paul's comments, maybe they're a little too optimistic in that regard. But that's the market's assumptions, and that's an important difference between the United States uh, and the, the, the Eurozone, where the markets, I think, would doubt the commitment of, in particular, the German taxpayer to stand behind the ECB. Does that mean we should not be concerned about the ECB or its interventions? No, it doesn't. I would point, uh, the Federal Reserve, excuse me, I would point out that the Federal Reserve still has about $1 trillion worth of uh, mortgage securities on its balance sheet. These I would refer to as politically toxic assets in that the Fed cannot um, simply sell them in the market as part of normal open market operations because of the political uh, implications of doing that. It would have an enormous effect on the housing market and would certainly raise huge red flags in Congress. Um, to my mind, the best way for the Federal Reserve to deal with that issue is in conjunction with the U.S. Treasury. It should swap that portfolio with the Treasury, leave the Treasury and the U.S. taxpayer with that risk in return for U.S. Treasury securities. That would not reduce the size of the Fed's balance sheet, but it would return it to a normal uh, composition and at least allow it the possibility of tightening monetary policy using normal tools. I'll stop there. Thank you, Ben. <clears throat> Our second speaker this morning is George Malone. George is a former uh, deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal editorial page where he spent a 54-year career writing and editing. Um, the list of uh, awards, and <laughs> he covered the world, the list of awards and, um, and accomplishments over that long career uh, is too long to read here. But in 1982, he won the Gerald Loeb Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Journalism, unless you think he's just a financial journalist. He also twice won the Daily Gleaner Award of the Inter-American Press Association for his writings about the Soviet influence uh, in Central America. And um, he's also the author of the 2009 book, The Great Money Binge, Spending Our Way to Socialism. Please welcome George Malone. Thank you, Mary. Well, if I had a nickel, I know what I would do. I'd spend it all on candy and give it all to you. That's how much I love you, baby. <laughs> uh, well, that wasn't, wasn't a terribly uh, generous offer, even back in 1946, when uh, country uh, singer Eddie Arnold penned those words. But you could buy a Baby Ruth bar, fairly generous-sized Baby Ruth bar or a Clark bar, so it uh, wasn't, wasn't too bad. Today, with a nickel, what could you buy? Maybe a jelly bean. Um, so <clears throat> that's the, um, 
I don't think love has been devalued, although I'm not an expert on that subject, but uh, uh, you have to consult Lionel Tiger or Lady Gaga or somebody like that on that. <coughs> uh, but we do know what has happened to the nickel. And uh, that's the problem with fiat currencies. They lose value over time, which means they fail in a very important requirement of money. Uh, which is that it be a storehouse of value, a storehouse of wealth. Uh, <clears throat> and if some currencies sink faster than others, and there seems to be a correlation between how fast they sink and the quality of political leadership in the uh, issuing state. <clears throat> I lived and worked in England in the late 1960s at the heights of the UK's post-war socialist experiment. State mismanagement of the means of production was destroying the efficiency of British industry. At the same time, the government was doling out free goods, national health, for example. The excess of uh, government-mandated consumption over production was steadily eroding the once powerful pound sterling, forcing heavy government borrowing. The weakening pound was being abandoned as a reserve asset by central banks, even within the far-flung British Commonwealth. The result was inevitable, a sharp official devaluation 14.3% in November 1967. To anyone who might think that the post-war monetary system was nirvana, Bretton Woods I'm talking about, recall that Bretton Woods was then operative. Socialist Britain spent years fudging on its Bretton Woods obligations, hitting up the US and the IMF for the money to tide it over until, as Mr. Micawber said, something turned up, nothing ever did. Bretton Woods finally went belly up when the US itself followed the British example with LBJ's war on poverty, a big social spending campaign conducted at the same time <clears throat> we were trying to combat the spread of communism with a shooting war in Vietnam. Richard Nixon performed the coup de grace on Bretton Woods in August 1971, as we all know, when he closed the gold window, thereby destroying the the system's already weak central control mechanism, the exchange of gold among central banks at a fixed dollar rate. So there you have the problem. Fiat currencies are subject to the vagaries of politics. Highly productive countries can maintain currency stability more easily than unproductive countries because they produce broadly marketable goods. But even governments of such strong nations can weaken their currencies through spending and borrowing excesses. Because of the U.S.'s great industrial power, the U.S. dollar has remained the world's foremost currency even after Bretton Woods despite the political abuse 
the dollar has suffered these last 40 years. But lately, with plus trillion dollar federal deficits forcing the Treasury to borrow heavily from both the Fed and foreign central banks, the dollar's global primacy is increasingly questioned. Were there an attractive alternative, it would be even weaker than it already is in international currency markets. America's heavy borrowing began when Washington reached the effective political limits of its power to extract money from taxpayers. Spending nonetheless continued to grow on borrowed money. <clears throat> now we are all getting very nervous. When the Federal Reserve creates vast amount of money to lend to the U.S. government, inflation is the likely result, as Congressman Paul has pointed out. The warning signals are flying with the CPI rising at over 3% annually in a relatively flat economy. When the British government was destroying the pound in the 1960s, inflation expectations eventually wiped out the bond market. If you can't borrow long, it's pretty hard to build and rebuild permanent infrastructure. The result is stagnation. The one bright side in all of this is that the American public seems to have a better understanding of the government's role in money de destruction than it did during the inflation of the 1970s. The standard practice in politics is to blame producers when the prices go up, fomenting such things as the latest demonstrations against Wall Street in New York and elsewhere. The politicians are sometimes aided, I'm sad to say, by gullible or tendentious journalists. Our current president is playing this game and you can expect it to intensify as the 2012 election approaches. But that old ploy isn't working as well as it once did. Voters are more sophisticated and are increasingly distrustful of attempts by officials to shift blame. Conf confidence in government is at a low ebb. People look to places like Greece where sovereign debt went sour because the sovereign was fat and lazy. They draw conclusions. Does that mean that the voters are ready for an alternative to fiat money? I don't think so yet. Fiat money hasn't been a total disaster. Financial markets have remained liquid during periods of extreme stress, as in, 19, in 2008, because of the ability of the Fed to generate a flood of money to offset sharp declines in asset values. The flexibility of fiat money can be both a cause and a cure. It was a cause during the credit boom. It was a cure or at least a stopgap <clears throat> after the boom. But has the Fed reached the limits of its power to cure and now risks devastating inflation? Sad to say, I don't think there is a political chance of restoring discipline to the monetary system until we learn the answer to that question. The circumstances under which the American public will demand some new form of monetary discipline or an old form such as a gold standard may prove to be very unpleasant. The speculation about alternative, alternatives to the dollar is not reassuring at this point. There's the idea of turning the IMF into a global world bank. 
that would issue special drawing rights as the reserves, the world's reserve currency. A look at the IMF's record in a much more limited role as the international monetary nanny hardly encourages that idea. We already have one multilateral fiat currency, the euro, and the European Central Bank has had little more luck disciplining the politicians of Greece or Italy than the Fed has ever had in denying American congresspersons free money. The Maastricht Treaty sets severe restrictions on deficits and debt in the Eurozone. Greek ministers decided that it was politically wiser to meet the demands of their, <coughs> their uh, strident, overgrown public sector than to worry about treaty commitments that the Germans or French had little means to enforce. The world's banks, bless their hearts, were buying their euro paper, so what the heck. So is there any alternative to the jerry-built non-system that circulates the world's money today? To reestablish a gold standard, the U.S. would have to take the lead. There would have to be a radical, almost revolutionary change in our politics for that to happen. Even a return to the Bretton Woods Gold Exchange Standard, or whatever you call it, doesn't look feasible at this point, partly because of its historic failure to instill discipline. It had a mechanism for official devaluation, perhaps because some of the designers thought the potential embarrassment of official devaluation would constrain politicians. But the U.S., when its time came, didn't bother for, with official devaluation, it just scuttled the whole system. Are there any conditions under which, <clears throat> which might actually force a change? There are, but we aren't going to like them. The current rate of price inflation keeps, if the current, current rate of price inflation keeps climbing toward double digits, and we enter a phase of severe stagflation, there will be still more anger from voters. It will be worse than it was in 1970s. I agree with Congressman, <clears throat> the Congressman on that, because it will start from a higher base. Jimmy Carter hired Paul Volcker to restore order in 1979. Who will restore order the next time and how will it be done? We are much further down the road than we were traveling in the late 1970s in terms of unrealistic deficit levels and the increasing necessity that they be financed by the central bank. It is, if a current central banker applied the, the harsh medicine Volcker did in 1979 and 1980, he would bring howls from the treasury as it struggles to finance the current deficit and refinance maturing debts, a total approaching two trillion annually. It also would starve the private sector, already weakened by three years of regulatory abuse, and force an even sharper recession than the one suffered in the early 1980s <clears throat> that resulted from monetary contraction. With federal spending at 25% of GDP, much higher than in 1980, and some states drowning in red ink, 
it would be harder not only to restore the dollar but also to pull out of the resulting slump. Out of the turmoil, we might not get reformers, we might get demagogues. In past periods, people have dealt with debasement of currencies by adopting alternative means of settling debts. In Argentina, during the hyperinflations, the alternative currency was the dollar. But what currency would you use in parallel to the dollar? A creative society will invent substitutes if circumstances demand it. Gold clauses in contracts might offer some protection for traders. And how about cyber currency? There's already something called a Bitcoin in limited peer-to-peer -peer circulation, partly for illicit activities. So I am told. It is a complex computer encryption that supposedly has intrinsic value because it is so hard to make. And of course there are scripts issued by local merchants, that sort of thing, but they're tied to the dollars. And then there's barter and there's a last resort. The problem is, of course, that sub import improvised substitutes for fiat currencies are usually inefficient. In some sense, fiat currencies have served well, judging from the healthy expansion of world trade and an impressive rise in global GDP over the years since Bretton Woods. Millions of Chinese and Indians, not to mention other nationalities and other poor lands, have been lifted out of poverty. But keep in mind, most of that has happened during the 20 years of relative dollar stability that began in the 1980s. We are right to be concerned about the stewardship of the world's most important fiat currency. If it goes, le déluge. Thank you. Thank you, George. Our final speaker this morning is Jerry O'Driscoll. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. And um, most of you probably know his name because he's very widely quoted, uh, a very widely quoted expert on banking and monetary policy. He uh, was previously the director of the Center for International Trade and Economics at, at the Heritage Foundation. And he spent um, time prior to that both at Citibank and at the Fed. I don't know if those are good things or not. Um, <laughs> Former. <laughs> Former. <laughs> um, he is also a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Please welcome Jerry O'Driscoll. Thank you, Mary. Uh, I, I couldn't be more pleased of being on this particular panel because uh, there's a lot of personal connections here. Uh, Mary did not mention that she and I used to be the uh, editors of the Index of Economic Freedom at, uh, at Heritage, and of course George Malone was always had a hand in the background. I begin with a quote from uh, the book by Ben Steele and Emanuel Hines that uh, Mary O'Grady mentioned in her introduction, uh, in which they make the point that throughout virtually all of human history up until 1971, money was some form of valuable and durable commodity or a claim on such a commodity. Uh, the current global fiat monetary arrangements 
uh, is something the world stumbled into. It wasn't designed. The global fiat money came about because of flaws in the prior global monetary arrangements and a political crisis in the United States. The theory behind the current global monetary arrangements is something called monetary nationalism. Monetary nationalism argues that each country should have its own currency. This, this, we grew up thinking this is normal, but again, I want to emphasize this is very abnormal in human history. That the uh, size of the national money stock should not be determined in the same way that money is distributed in regions of a country. So, for instance, in the United States, trade and capital flows among the states determine the share of the total money supply in each, in, held by residents of each state. A truly global monetary order would operate the same way across countries as it does operate across the United States. And that's how the classical gold standard worked. Now, the classical gold standard, has, we haven't seen it since the eve of World War I. In World War I, countries suspended convertibility. That is the ability of the citizens of the country to acquire gold by turning in currency. Central banks financed government wartime spending, and there was a great inflation in all countries. It differed in countries. After the war, there were price deflations of various magnitudes. These were exacerbated by the decisions of some countries, notably the United Kingdom, to return to gold convertibility at the pre-war parity. Economists as diverse as Ludwig von Mises, John Maynard Keynes, as had David Ricardo in the 19th century, advised against convertibility of pre-war parities because it would cause great deflations. Now, as I'm going to discuss, the idea that deflation is bad and deflation is associated with gold standard comes out of the collapse of the gold standard due, due to war and great, the great inflation uh, that occurred. The post-World War I system was a form of what is known as the gold exchange standard. Central banks economized on their gold reserves, which created chronic payment problems among the central banks. Creditor countries were discouraged from asking for gold reserves from debtor countries. The fundamental problem was not gold, but the undervaluation of gold relative to the national currencies. And the degree of undervaluation varied by country. Gold in that system constrained, but did not determine the supply of national currencies. So there was already an element of monetary nationalism in the post-World War I gold standard. The system collapsed in the wake of the Great Depression. Country after country suspended convertibility. In the past, suspension of convertibility was associated only with wars and was temporary. In the 1930s, the breakdown of international trade and investment flows mimicked what happens in wartime. Some view the breakdown as the prelude to the next war. I happen to be one of them. Okay, so the world found itself with fiat currencies. This was the first uh, experience, non-wartime. The question was whether there'd be a return to a gold standard. There were, there were efforts for such a return, and some people think that if they hadn't been short-circuited by the U.S. abandonment of the gold standard, there would have been a return to the gold standard. That's contentious. Okay, so uh, 
Monetary nationalists thought that this system of the 1930s would produce a number of benefits. Avoiding price deflation uh, loomed large. Now, again, I really want to emphasize the idea that somehow deflation is something you associate with a commodity standard uh, is, is not correct. Uh, again, think of the United States. Money flows between states and regions in the United States all the time. We don't even know what's going on. No one pays attention to it. We don't publish statistics about it. And it doesn't cause great inflations and deflations in different states. Okay. Now, there were periods of deflation in the 19th century, but they were associated with two things going on at once. Incredible growth in productivity and output in the Western world as countries went on the gold standard, and as countries went on the gold standard, a big increase in the demand for gold. Between 1873 and 1913, Britain experienced growth in real income of 65%, while prices fell 20% over that period. In the United States, the income gain was 110%, and prices fell 32%. So if, if you were to do a study uh, and, you, and some kind of crude association between uh, uh, growth and price movements, you'd say, well, growth, high growth periods are associated with deflation. It would be a ridiculous to draw that conclusion, but there's certainly to draw the opposite conclusion is just historically incorrect. Um, in the, if you take a longer period, rather than the last quarter of the, of the 19th century, in the United Kingdom, for the period from the resumption of gold convertibility after the Napoleonic Wars, so 1820s, until the eve of World War I, the price level in the United Kingdom was unchanged. And constancy of prices over long periods of time is one of the great benefits of the gold standard. I might add that another interesting statistic is the bank rate, well, the kind of equivalent to the federal funds rate, the rate the central bank charged, was the same at the end of this period as it was at the beginning of this period. Okay, so the idea is that deflation is bad come and is associated with the gold standard comes from the breakdown of the gold standard, not from its operation. And again, the major breakdown was the consequence of World War I. No monetary system survives big wars. I mean, that's, that's a lesson of history. Okay, so fiat money and flexible exchange rates were supposed to insulate countries from the transmission of financial socks. Now, today, I mean, that's so obviously wrong, as we well know today. But, but why? And it's not like people didn't predict it. In fact, in the 1930s, Hayek predicted that fiat money systems would cause more shock transmission across countries rather than less. And, and the reason is simple. In a fiat money system, you have capital flows that would not otherwise occur, and they occur only because of fears of changes in the exchange rate. The fear of a depreciation causes capital flow out, and the fear of an appreciation causes capital flow in. In, in a gold standard, short-term movements of capital stabilize exchange rates rather than destabilize them. Countries that are having short-run pressures borrow, and the inflow of capital preserves the exchange rate and preserves price stability in the country, and vice versa. Okay, now 
we've already talked a bit about Bretton Woods, and the Bretton Woods system uh, can be summarized by saying it was the gold exchange standard system running on vapor. It was the ghost of gold. In other words, it, ex it economized more on gold reserves than even the gold exchange standard between the World War I and World War II. The reason I spent time on the system between World War I and World War II is it predicted what was going to happen to the uh, Bretton Woods system. In the Bretton Woods system, you didn't just economize on gold. <coughs> Only the U.S. offered to exchange its currency dollars for gold. All other currencies were effectively pegged to the dollar. That's why I call it the ghost of gold. It was truly a dollar standard. So it wasn't really a commodity standard, even though gold still played a role. And that, it, it's real easy to summarize why the system had to collapse. The supply of gold in the world was inelastic, and the supply of dollars was elastic, but they were trading at a constant exchange rate, and no such system in the world, it's not just money, no other system, no system can work that way. Now, this year marked the 40th anniversary, as we've already heard several times, of Nixon's decision to close the gold window, that is permanently end the convertibility of dollars into gold. This was in a response to growing international run on the dollar and to rising U.S. inflation rate. Um, does anybody remember what the inflation rate was that caused Nixon to shut the gold window? It was running at the astounding rate of 4.2%, a, a, a blip above the current exchange rate today. So again, I want to reiterate, the people who are making the analogies of today to the 70s are completely correct and people who deny that there's an analogy don't remember history, or they remember it and choose to forget it. Now, what I want to emphasize, then, is monetary nationalism. Oh, by the way, it was a purely political decision on Nixon's part. And if you read the various accounts that went on at the Camp David meeting, there was no grand strategy. There was no plan for a, a, a economic order. They were doing it by the seat of their pants. And for the rest of the Nixon administration, they were running monetary policy by the seat of their pants. Monetary nationalism then had not won by persuasiveness of intellectual arguments, but by default and political tactics of a president worried about his reelection. He did a lot of bad things worried about his reelection. <laughs> <laughs> so there was no finely tuned economic calculus behind Camp David. The world once again returned to fire currencies and floating exchange rates. <coughs> It was a system historically associated with wars and temporary expedience that war begets. What followed immediately was the first peacetime high inflation episode in the United States. Longer term, it, it exposed the world to the rest of what Steele and Himes terms the inherent monetary conflict of the Fed, which it produces both the domestic currency and the international currency, and, and the goals of these two things will frequently be in conflict. Now, unlike the others, I am not going to worry about political calculations because, first of all, as an economist, I don't know what's politically possible. There's nothing you learn in getting a PhD in economics that gives you special expertise in what's politically possible. And I think that the evidence of great leaders is that they do things that their predecessors thought were not politically possible. I think that almost defines leadership. So 
I'm not going to get into that. Um, I do know that economic freedom and political freedom are systematically related. And I do know that to maintain the classical liberal order, which is economic freedom, requires the monetary arrangements congruent with that order. And that system is a classical gold standard. So if we want to restore our economic freedoms, we have to restore the classical gold standard. There are many moving parts in this. And uh, uh, my argument is that no matter what you want to do with banking reform, wh whatever the kind of system you want, it's a necessary condition that you restore the gold standard. It's not a sufficient condition for monetary and banking reform, but it's a necessary condition. You can run a gold standard with a central bank. You can run a gold standard without a central bank. And in the rest of the paper, I just make the argument for deferring the, the contentious debate that separates people who believe in getting rid of the fiat money system over what you do with the banking system. Do you have a central bank? Do you have a free banking system? Do you have currency competition, international currency competition? Not because really Hayek's idea was international currency competition. I just say you have to go back to gold before you can make any of those other decisions. Thank you.